Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts and also available as a video on YouTube and on Facebook. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. In 1989, things were looking somewhat bleak for the Democratic Party. They were still holding on to a long run of control in the U.S. House of Representatives, but they had lost three consecutive presidential races. And in the six elections between 1968 and 1988, Democrats won only once while averaging just 42% of the popular vote. Two political scholars, Bill Galston and Elaine K. Mark, wrote a blunt wake-up call to their own party, saying, quote, Too many Americans have come to see the party as inattentive to their economic interests, indifferent, if not hostile, to their moral sentiments, and ineffective in defense of their national security. They called their article The Politics of Evasion. And the message was clear. Stop explaining things away with convenient and comforting excuses and face reality. Now, those same authors have published a widely circulated and much discussed follow-up called The New Politics of Evasion, How Ignoring Swing Voters Could Reopen the Door for Donald Trump and Threaten American Democracy. And we are very fortunate to have one of those authors with us. Elaine K. Mark is a contributing author for the Progressive Policy Institute. She's a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program, as well as the director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. And she's a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She's participated actively in four presidential campaigns and 10 nominating conventions, including two Republican conventions. And she served as a superdelegate to five Democratic conventions. She also served in the White House from 1993 to 1997, where she created what later became called the Reinventing Government Initiative. Elaine, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And this is sort of a dreary subject for Democrats. I mean, no one no one likes the Cassandra role, but you play it really, really well. And I'm guessing you were hoping that we wouldn't be back here again, but here we are 33 years later. And boy, the arguments from your original article really do resonate. And you start off your new article by focusing on what you call the myths that cloud Democratic minds. And, and you point out, an observation from a veteran Democratic strategist, Doug Sosnick, that there are two key beliefs that Democrats cling to that are wrong and that have kind of been leading us astray. So maybe that's a good starting point for us. What are those mistaken beliefs? Well, thank you for having me. And of course, it's always great to talk to people in New Hampshire because everybody in New Hampshire cares about politics and that people like me love New Hampshire for that very reason. So um, look, we are back where we were 33 years ago. Okay. Um, We are creating an image of a political party that is fundamentally out of touch with the Americans that we need to vote for us particularly these swing voters. Um, The country is incredibly closely divided. The people thought when we go, we got rid of Trump, there was this huge sigh of relief and uh, we took the Senate and huge sigh of relief, but people didn't stop to think just how narrow that victory was. I mean, it was literally, you're talking about 40,000 votes in three states. Could have changed, we could have had Trump again. That's how close this was. And because the country is so narrowly divided, uh, the swing voters mean a lot more than they even did in the past. There are fewer competitive states and they are closer and closer. 
So that's why we have to pay attention to the swing voters. Um, how did we get sort of off course? We got off course because we elected Obama in 2008. There was this wonderful outpouring of young people, the millennial generation into the electorate. And remember, youth doesn't matter unless there are a ton of them, which is why when we look at politics, the baby boomers mattered and how they behaved mattered and the millennials matter. And in between, frankly, they don't run the electorate the way the millennials did. So the millennials came in with a, a, a new set of values, certainly a set of values more akin to the, the Democratic Party's values, elected Obama not once but twice, and left everybody thinking that we had turned a corner somehow in America. The problem was we didn't, <laughs> okay? And, and, and while demographic change is inevitable, it is also incredibly slow and it does create a backlash. So we're, we're in this spot now where we once again have to confront the arithmetic of our values. And that's a hard thing to, for people to do because us Democrats, we, we just want to live our values. Um, but there's an arithmetic behind it which says we can't win unless we pay attention to some other things. So it, you're pointing out uh, a, a serious misperception. Um, to some extent, as observers of the political scene, um, it looks like both parties have convinced themselves that mobilizing their base is the key to winning elections. But I think it's particularly true of Democrats whose power is concentrated in fewer places than Republicans, um, sort of isolating some Democrats from what the rest of the country is going through. In the case of Democrats, the misperception gives carte blanche to swing as far left as they like. And you wrote in, in your article, and I'm quoting, too many of the most vocal Democrats have adopted stances on fraught social issues, policing, immigration, public schools, and others that repel a majority of Americans because a substantial portion of the Democratic Party has convinced itself that Americans are ready for a political revolution. And do I get that right? Is that absolutely. what's going on? You absolutely do. And I'll take you back to the uh, 2020 Democratic primaries. In fact, I, I came up to New Hampshire for the big debate between the candidates. It, I remember it well, not only because it's great to be in New Hampshire all the time, but also because it was the, about the last thing I did before the world shut down. Um, and those primaries featured candidates uh, endorsing things like abolishing ICE, which is the Border Patrol, you know, um, you, you know, enforcement agency. And God bless him, Joe Biden was the only one on that stage who said, no, I'm not for that. We're not for open borders. And yet I can't tell you the number of times I've been invited on various radio shows, sort of center and right wing radio shows. And first thing they say is, oh, well, you're a Democrat, so you must be for open borders. 
And I said, no. <laughs> and none of the Democrats that I know in Congress are for open borders. Nobody's for open borders. But what happens to Democrats because we, and, and part of it was we were so appalled at Trump's behavior on the border that some people went all the way in the other direction to open borders, that's nuts. And we don't say no clearly enough. Now, again, going back to the campaign, Biden was pretty good at this. He had a, a good ear for this. He said, remember, remember several times he said, am I a socialist? Are you kidding? I'm not a socialist. Look at me. Do I look like a socialist? Remember, he was very, very, he, he, he really kept knocking that down and knocking that down. But we have candidates running out there as in Democratic primaries with a Democratic socialist label. And the Republicans are only all too happy to paint the entire party with, the, with that brush. And we don't stand up for the center strongly enough. I think that, that really does connect the point you were just making to the way you structure your whole article, which is around three core myths that are persistent and that seem to pervade democratic politics these days. And I wanted to ask you about the first one, which is that people of color think and act alike. And this really rings a bell. It should ring a bell for our viewers and our listeners because the most popular episode of this show that we've ever done wasn't the one we just did with the third ranking leader in the house, Jim Clyburn, although maybe that'll climb the scales. It, it, it's not with anyone who's a celebrity. It's with a data analyst. It's, it, it was with David Shore, <laughs> who's been making this point very loudly and very persuasively over the course of the last year. And it, it, it sort of runs through your article. So maybe you could unpack that for us a little bit. What is this myth that people of color think and act alike? And what are the implications of Democrats being wrong about it? Well, the, the, the myth started because in fact, we have seen the coming of age of the huge Hispanic population in America. Okay, and in men and, and remember, Democrats have been talking about Hispanics as part of their coalition ever since the Hispanics were in kindergarten, because when Bill and I back when we wrote the politics of evasion, Hispanics constituted about five percent of the electorate. In other words, they were not really, I mean, mostly because they were young, partially because a lot of people were here illegally and couldn't vote, but also, but mostly it was because it was a very young population. Well, that young population in the past 33 years has gotten older and started to vote. And what do we find, right? We find that, first of all, they are more conservative on social issues. Um, we find that they are less concerned about immigration policy than we thought they were. And that within that broad Hispanic population come people from places like Cuba and Venezuela most recently, which were socialist disasters, okay? In fact, there aren't many countries in the world that are socialist successes. And this is something that the young people, I think, who, who, who promote this um, just can't figure out, right? Why this is such a disastrous term within the Democratic Party we are not socialists. And in fact, Biden just the other day said in something, he said, I'm a capitalist. State right? of the Union. And Elizabeth Warren constantly says, I'm a capitalist. Um, this socialism, socialism in the world was a mess. And 
it, it, unfortunately, you have to be as old as me or Paul to really remember what a mess it was. But and I think a lot of people don't. And there's a history lesson to be taken here. Anyway, that affiliation of the Democrats with socialism is really cut into the Hispanic vote. And we are the Hispanic vote. Um, Biden lost Hispanics in Florida, where there's a lot of Venezuelans, a lot of Cubans. Um, and he, in the first year of his presidency, his numbers among Hispanics are very bad, are very frightening. His numbers definitely have gone down among Hispanics. So the, treating this whole, the, the, the whole coalition of color, it, it's a myth, just doesn't exist. I think the second thing to be said about it is that somehow people made the assumption that Hispanics were going to be like African-Americans. And, you know, it's being an immigrant is very different than being a slave and brought here. Being an immigrant, it takes you a couple generations. You marry somebody from the other tribe, you move to the suburbs, and sometimes, unfortunately, you become Republicans. Um, being African-American, you were redlined out of living in neighborhoods. You were, I mean, until the 40s, really, you weren't allowed to marry anybody who wasn't Black. I mean, it's a whole different ballgame. And the African-American community is much more cohesive in its experience and in its politics than you could ever expect the Hispanic community to be. And I think that was a mistake that people made um, early on, which is not to say that there hasn't been prejudice and discrimination against Hispanics, but it is to say that every immigrant group, I'm Italian, my parents were Italian, my dad was not allowed in a fraternity, he was called a WAP and a Dago, et cetera. In other words, every immigrant group goes through some garbage thrown at them. And uh, it's very different than the African-American experience. And I think lumping them together was a mistake um, on the part of the uh, part of the Democrats not seeing that differences. So your second myth is uh, economics trumps culture. And you you wrote that um, too many Democrats uh, believe that showering Americans with public resources is the surest path to victory. And you show why that's not really always true. So can you explain this myth, uh, why it's wrong and, and, and how, it, how it's impacting um, Democrats and, and the prospects? So I think the, the, the easiest way to get into this is a really simple proposition, right? If you ask people, what would you rather have? health care, right, from the government, or a good job that gives you good health care. They would say a good job that gives you good health care. Mm -hmm. okay? What people want is not the redistributive stuff that Democrats are so enamored of. They want jobs. They want really good jobs where so that you don't have to think about that other thing. The health care comes with it. The retirement comes with it, et cetera. Um, so that's a, that's a problem for Democrats. I think the second thing is that we, we always, we Democrats always got by because the Republicans made the following mistake. They always talked about changing social security, right? They always, and, and cutting Medicare. And so you had the Paul Ryan wing of the Republican party that was the eat your peas Republicans. This is too expensive, we can't afford this, da, 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 da. And it always ended up scaring off 
voters. Donald Trump comes into this race in 2016. And what does he say time and time again? I'm not going to touch your social security. I'm not going to touch your Medicare. Done. He takes away one of the Democrats' most powerful um, arguments because we were always the protector of the social safety net. And in fact, I, I just read this morning in an article about the, the you know, intra-party fights in the Senate that this the, um, the guy, uh, Congress, Senator Scott, who put out this plan for the um, Democrats, uh, for the for the Republicans, talks about cutting Social Security and cutting Medicare and repealing Obamacare. Okay, right. and not not surprisingly, Mitch McConnell is furious at him, <laughs> right? Because that's what a polite not, way to say it. Yes. What? That's a yes. polite way to say it. Yes. Yes, but you know the it it. Basically, what Donald Trump did for the Republican Party is get them out of the um, position of threatening people's social safety net. And we can't, that makes it really hard for us to get back. And now, now he can run on values and on, on all these other things. And in fact, you say in your article that social, cultural, and religious issues are real, and in many cases, more important to voters than economic considerations. Yeah. I mean, if you look at people who are pro-life, you look at people who are pro-big defenders of the Second Amendment, there's no economic relationship there. Right. I mean, that has nothing to do. Those have nothing to do with economics. These are these are you, you find people all across the economic spectrum who have those positions. Those those are lifestyle positions, values positions, and they're meaningful. And we, we make the mistake of thinking that, oh, look, we've got this great big plan for giving you lots of money and that somehow that's going to overcome your beliefs on these other issues. And it simply doesn't. And you also point out that FDR foresaw in the creation of, of Social Security that there is a version of this that voters respond to, but it involves them getting benefits back that they pay into. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, that story is not well enough known, I think, by by the current generation, which is at the time FDR was putting together the Social Security Act, the Social Security Act, he was being advised by a bunch of um, immigrants from Europe um, who came from a different model. And they wanted to create the European welfare state where pensions were basically put into place by the state. And he rejected them all. And he said, I'm gonna create a system where people pay in. And then he said, and therefore no one will, no politician will ever dare touch social security. And he's been, he was right <laughs> many, many years ago. I'm remind, I remind myself of a nutty idea I had because I was there to um, lose my political career over Obamacare. And when, when I, we were figuring out, when I was trying to figure out how, how do I sell this to people who are skeptical, you know, I'd go into a diner and uh, run into people in New Hampshire and, and, and they'd say, keep um, yeah, you darn government hands off my health care, but don't you dare touch my Medicare. And um, <laughs> I, I don't want no no government hand handout. And 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 I, my nutball idea was: listen, 
Don't even talk about healthcare. Let's just say it's a jobs bill. It's going to free you up to be able to be mobile in your job because the job job market has changed and you're not getting healthcare for the for life anymore. And people are going to have different jobs. This is just a jobs bill. This is just a way for you to move from jobs to jobs. What do you think? Was I crazy? <laughs> no, you were absolutely right. That's what Americans care about. And that's what Americans associate Democrats with. Okay, they do associate, they still do associate Democrats as being good on jobs. And we fail to play that time and time again. Now, I will say that the White House is clearly getting the message because in the State of the Union, the president picked up a phrase that Majority Leader Steny Hoyer had been using for a decade, make it in America. Right. Okay, make it in America. And that is so important. That says to the people in Ohio whose fathers lost their jobs to China and Michigan and all those states that we have to fight so hard to get and that we win by a you know, very narrow margin, that says to them, oh, this guy gets it, right? This guy gets it. We want to bring these factories back. We, we need to make it in America. And now, of course, we're faced with a war and all sorts of potential international disruption. And all of a sudden, everybody's thinking, you know, it's not such a bad idea to make more stuff in America, Chip, computer chips and anybody trying to buy a car these days. I had to buy a new car and it's, it's a horrible experience because it's so expensive. But one of the reasons is the chips. We don't make chips here. So, so I think that one of the things that Democrats need to do is wrap everything around jobs, just as just as you did, Paul, in, in, in your campaign. And I'm sorry it didn't work, but I mean, but it is the direction in which the party has to go. We have to become the party of good jobs, not of government handouts. Because nobody well, you know, that's a perfect that. segue actually to, to your third myth in a way, isn't it? Because your your third myth is that a progressive ascendancy is emerging. Those those are a lot of actually great words, but <laughs> this idea that, oh, everyone's buying in now these days. There's a majority of us who are right on board with progressive Twitter or, or whatever. And you say that, in fact, not only is that not true, but, and I'm quoting here, for reasons of education and income and geography, many Democratic voters and leaders are far removed from the daily experiences and cultural outlooks of non-college voters. And I, I really want to punch the end of that sentence there because you are talking very much in, in what you were just saying a moment ago about non-college educated voters and the preponderance of, of that type of voter, especially in these swing upper Midwest states, and how this, this myth, this misunderstanding of cultural emergence is, is really clouding our judgment when it comes to winning this critical segment of voters. Boy, you you are right on there. I mean, I would I would if no if people pick up this report, which is kind of long and kind of wonky and a lot of no, it's worth it, folks. Read the report. Go to PPI Progressive <laughs> Policy Institute. Read it. I'm serious. It's riveting. But if you if you if you can't read the whole thing, just look at table number one. Table number one lists nine key states in the United States. And all it does is break out the, the voters, right? The voters in 2020 by college, non-college whites, Blacks and Hispanics. In seven out of those nine states, the number of non-college white voters surpasses by a large amount the number of Black and Hispanic voters combined. So there you have it. You cannot win 
without some non-college voters. Now we do well among college voters, but people living in prosperous blue states tend to forget that most of the country didn't go to a four-year college. Okay, even in even now, certainly this number is bigger than it used to be, right? But even in this day and age, most people don't go to a four-year college. And what Trump did, which was unique, by the way, non, non-college whites used to not vote very much. Okay, they used to be a sort of marginalized part of the population, which led, I think, a lot of Democratic strategists and a lot of people who build models to underestimate Trump's strength. What Trump did is he brought them into the electorate in a big way. And boy, are they here to stay, whether they're driving trucks around the, the Washington Beltway to, to protest man, um, vaccine mandates or whatever they're doing, they are here. This group is mobilized, they're energized, and they are here to stay, which means we have to talk to them. We have to talk to them and we have to talk to them on their values. Now, the education, here's how the education fits in. If you are highly educated, you're, you probably make more money. That means you probably live in a nice, safe suburb. If you are not highly educated, you probably make less money, and you might live in a neighborhood that has some crime or is very close to a neighborhood that has some crime. So when you hear some Democrat talk about defunding the police, you think they're nuts. You need the police right? You need the police in your neighborhood. That doesn't mean you're for police brutality, right? But it is, it, it, it's just one of the, it's the clearest example. And I, I don't know if Jim Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn said this when he was on your show last week, but he has said that defunding the police probably cost us 14 Democratic seats in the United States Congress. Can you imagine? It is a disaster. And if you go back 33 years, the issues are different, right? Gay marriage is no longer, it doesn't have the oomph that it, that it had 33 years ago in terms of turning out voters. And there's a lot of other issues. So the issues change, but the effect is the same. Democrats get themselves on the wrong side of the cultural issues. And that's all that matters, right? That's, that's all that matters. And boy, did we suffer from it this time. So one of the things that you do in your article is you offer a very helpful summary uh, of your analysis of what you call the new structure of American politics. And again, I'm going to quote because, frankly, you say these things better in your article than I could paraphrase them because <laughs> the, uh, you're a good writer. So you write, even though deepening partisanship has reduced the number of swing voters, the narrow margins of our recent national elections has made these voters more important than ever. This reality will dominate national politics until one party breaks the deadlock of the past three decades and creates a decisive national majority. So this really connects to the point you're making right at the top of the show, which is that even though there are indeed many fewer swing voters than there used to be, and we've all heard about that, I think anyone who follows politics over the last five or 10 years has heard, oh, the vanishing swing right. voter down to six to 9% of the electorate is, is swing voters. They're, they're even more important. And, and you go on, if I could commend another table for people, sure. you, you show beyond table one, you show in, in pretty good fine grain detail in the report why swing voters are so important, and particularly in their role in the, in the swing states. So anything you want to kind of break out from, from that argument that you really want people to pay attention to in terms of 
why swing voters paradoxically matter so much more, even though there are so many fewer of them? Well, simply they matter more because the electorate is so evenly divided. It's just absolutely closely divided. And because democratic strength is is highly concentrated. It's highly concentrated in that the vast number of congressional districts around New York City, around Boston, around Los Angeles and San Francisco, around Chicago, but not very prevalent in some states that because of the electoral college, let's face it, the, the Democrats need to win and Republican voters are favored in this kind of setup. If we didn't have the Electoral College, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. And the reason is that Democrats, beginning with Al Gore in 2000, have in fact won the popular vote. They've won the popular vote, but they've lost in the Electoral College. And Biden managed to win the Electoral, electoral College vote. So he had a nice Electoral College win, but, but all of those states, which they're still fighting over, right, are, were very, very narrow wins. Arizona was narrow, Georgia was narrow, Michigan was narrow. So you, you've, you've got a situation where the structure of American politics now weighs towards one party, not the other. Rural states, thank you, founding fathers, everybody had to get two senators, right, according to the deal at the Constitutional Convention. So rural states are have more votes in the Electoral College per population than do urban states. And so you get a little teeny Wyoming, which isn't even a county in California, and Wyoming has three Electoral College votes. And you can say that for Delaware, Vermont, for, I mean, it, for all of the very, very small states. And, and so that, that is, that has caused quite a problem in our modern politics, right? And it, and it means that the Democrats are, the Democrats concentration doesn't allow for a true reflection of their strength. This happens in congressional races too. In many, many congressional races, if you add up all the votes for Democrats across the country, there are more votes for Democrats than Republicans, but Republicans win more congressional seats. Okay, so we're just we're just in a fix here, and we, we're not going to change the Electoral College. I mean, some people are trying, and God bless them. I hope they succeed. But the fact of the matter is, we're probably not going to change the Electoral College, at least in the near future. So we've got to come to grips with this reality. It, it, one of the things that runs through both both reports, the old one, the nineteen eighty nine one, and the new one is that the, the strategy doesn't make sense when it comes to just plain old arithmetic. It's just arithmetic and it just doesn't work. There are not enough people in the, where the Democrats are, are looking to uh, create winning majorities in the states that you need to win. You know, in, in reading your report, a couple of things struck me that the, number one was you're counting the counties for Democrats and Republicans. And because when you break it down to counties, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, wait a second. Why do we even have Democrats if the counties, <laughs> if there's such disequilibrium in the count of counties? And, and the second thing you talked about uh, that, that are, the the necessity to focus focus 
so uh, resolutely on winning the presidency in order to save save the democracy and and how all this what all of this stuff the myths and how we handle them mean for democrats and and so you show how how the myths and the challenges play out in the swing states at the presidential level you talked a little bit about congressional um elections does your analysis apply I think I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Does it apply to the overall brand of the Democratic Party, the way at some deep fundamental emotional level that the voters in this country perceive Democrats and the challenges that they face down ballot as well as at the very top? Oh, I think absolutely so. I mean, it, 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 it affects the Democratic label all the way down to the extent that the democratic label gets tarred with you know some of these issues like defund the police or abolish ice or socialism it it affects everybody right it even affect can affect county commissioner races i mean it it just can and of course look what's happening now the the fights going on at school boards all right school boards you know maybe the the most local level of all of our politics school boards are now in the middle of fights that that were started you know at the national at the national level so absolutely it does but i think the other point you make you draw out of there is is right that back in 1989 by losing the presidency the worst democrats were going to do was hand the party over to George W. Bush and people like Bob Dole. Well, looking back <laughs> from today's vantage point, we should have such Republicans, right? The good old, you know, when I started studying political science, there were New England Republicans. God, we would love to have some New England Republicans again, right? They were moderate Republicans, kind of liberal on social issues, kind of careful about spending the government's money. But, you know, that wing of the Republican Party has been basically decimated. And now we're looking at a Republican Party that I, I think, I, I, by the way, I think it's a little overwrought that it's totally controlled Trump. I, I think that, in fact, he's not quite as strong as, as made out to be. But the mere thought that Trump could become president again should get the Democrats to sit up straight and stop the nonsense, right? And start talking about stuff that people need, want to hear about, and not all these bizarre cultural issues like critical race theory or defunding the police. And that's where we, we really need, to, the stakes are just higher. You know, the stakes this time are, are aren't just, well, how much of a social security cost of living increase do we get, right? The stakes here are, do we have a democracy if Trump gets elected? And I think that's a, it, it's a big difference in the 33 years. And it's, it's a difference that's happened within the Republican Party and well, is somewhat of a backlash to the, to the Democrats. Right. I mean, you make a really, really important point that for all the focus that many analysts and, and leading Democrats have applied. Uh, me among them, I'm not going to call myself a leading Democrat or an analyst. I, I guess I'm more of an analyst that, look, our, our voting system is under assault. There's voter suppression. There's election subversion. There's, there's a lot of skullduggery going on, and it could contribute to the return of Trump in you 2024, bet. and that would be a disaster. Okay, we agree. Let's stipulate that 
definitely need to focus like a laser beam on it. But you're providing sort of the, the missing other part of the story, which is, and we could try to be popular and win elections. That, that would also be a good way to try to stop Donald Trump. So you actually provide with a caveat, a prescription for doing this in your article. And the caveat is you're not, you're not going to lay out a detailed plan here, like a, a step-by-step blueprint, but you, you make a start on a high level pathway, I think you call it, to renewing the Democratic Party. So just, just at a high level, what does that look like? What, what would a winning pathway to make the Democratic Party more popular, repair its brand, and you know, actually win more votes in 2024 look like? Well, start with, start with what Paul said, right? Make a Democratic Party about jobs. Okay, make a Democratic Party about good jobs that give you health care, that give you some some sort of, you know, retirement security, et cetera. Wrap the Democratic Party about jobs and economic opportunity, not about government handouts. I think the the backlash to build back better was pretty was was a real lesson. Build back better ended up looking like a bunch of government welfare programs, which is not where American people are. Okay, so I, I think that's that's the first that's the first step. I think the second step is, and I've said I didn't say it in the paper, right? Because Bill didn't like it, but I, <laughs> I say it in other places. I said we need a we need a Frank Luntz. Now, Frank Luntz is a famous Republican wordsmith and pollster, etc., who, who who took the inheritance tax, for instance, which no progressive should be in favor of, right, or uh, low inheritance taxes, we should be in favor of higher inheritance taxes. He took the issue of inheritance taxes and called them death taxes. Now, that was just brilliant, right? That was That was just brilliant. We need him. Frank Luntz, looking at defund the police, looking at police reform, which in the wake of all the horrific shootings of Black men is, is should be a front and center issue. Frank Luntz would have called that a fighting crime better proposal. And the reason is that at the bottom of the police reform, the serious police reform efforts is an effort to, to move police from picking up the drunk on the subway stairs you know, because that's what the police spend a lot of time doing, right? The, some guys draw, there's a drug addict in the middle of the street. There's that from that to actually fighting crime, real criminals, real drug drug dealers, etc. And that, you know, that in fact should make crime prevention better. It should make it, you know, it should increase the ability of the police to get rid of bad guys. So you know, in Frank Luntz's world, that would have been an empowering the police, right, to to fight crime sort of uh, message. So we need to be really careful. And then, look, the wings of the far wings of both political parties are always out for clicks on their sites and contributions and getting attention. When somebody calls themselves a democratic socialist, their opponents in the Democratic Party have to say no. Socialism is a failed political ideology. What you're, what you're talking about is a robust welfare state, a robust safety net. Democrats have always been for a safety net in a capitalist society. But Democrats, I mean, again, as I said, Biden did it in the general election, 
I don't think, frankly, he did it as much as he needed to in his first year in office. Okay, but in the general election, it was Biden, and that's why that's one of the reasons he he got South Carolina is they looked at him and they said, well, he's the only sensible person on that stage. Everybody else was falling for this stuff. So I I think Biden did it. Biden needs to do it more, and Democrats up and down the line need to do that more. You know, and just to follow up on that for a moment, you, you alluded a moment ago to the search for clicks, the search for donations, you know, and 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 sort of the increasing heated fundraising driven rhetoric that <laughs> exists in the email inboxes of America and also okay. in the social media feeds of America. You were instrumental in helping to lead our way as a party out of this problem last time, 33 years ago. And I just wonder, is it possible to do again in the new political and technological reality we find ourselves in with highly progressive bot and Russia driven world of social media where algorithmic amplification drives the most extreme content. Are, are we going to be able to find our, our way out of this one? Well, that's why I say that, you know, democratic leaders have to really get more vocal about this. Okay, because they're all, you know, they're all my age, Paul's age, right? They, they hearken back to a different era. You know, I mean, I think it's great that my report got a lot of clicks, but it was when David Brooks wrote about it in the in the paper of the New York Times that it mattered to me. You know, we're we're kind of old fashioned creatures. Um, and I and I think I think it's the party has been slow to realize how much stuff that we think is sort of nonsense infects the the general population because of the algorithm what do you call it the algorithmic something? algorithmic amplification algorithm i mean that's a mouthful but it's a great phrase right? book likes the extreme clickbaity stuff that's and right. progressive twitter is not real life no it, it really isn't and i and i and i i also think by the way that the press is kind of at fault here too because they tend to read progressive Twitter, right, as being more than it's than it is, and right wing Twitter for that matter. So I think I think Biden himself, whose instinct in the primaries was to do this, I think as president he's got to keep doing this. I mean, he's got to keep answering all this stupid stuff out there, and so does Pelosi, and so does I mean Pelosi's pretty good about this, but she doesn't get a lot of airtime. You know, she's 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 pretty good. She really treats the sort of more extreme members of her caucus like errant children that she's just had it with. <laughs> and, and she's pretty good at doing this. But I, I do think that the leaders of the party are a, a bit caught unawares by this new world and by how popular some of this stuff gets. And, and by the way, I think this goes for the Republicans, too. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell, who, again, is of a different generation, I think Mitch McConnell is sort of learning. I mean, you know, stop it, Senator Scott. We don't believe whatever you're saying is not the Republican Party. He, he's finally learned to say that pretty clearly, but he's going to have to say it a million times. He's going to have to get he's going to get hit, have to get his clicks up there to exceed Scott's clicks if he wants to paint a more, you know, more moderate image of the Republican Party. Well, this is a perfect time to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter. Paul is Paul Hodes1. <laughs> I'm at Matt L. Robeson. And 
I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but I'm kind of being serious that if you want some thoughtful, reasoned analysis of what's going on in the world, you should also check out Elaine K. Mark. You can find her writing at the Progressive Policy Institute, at Brookings, at Harvard, basically the best and the brightest anywhere you go for thoughtful, reasoned analysis. That's where you find Elaine K. Mark. And thank you so much for walking us through your report. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.